Hey, give it up for Art for making this happen over the week. There's a lot more it takes to pull this off than, uh, than you might realize. Okay, you know what I'm going to ask, and I know one of you over here said you studied and read. There you are. Anybody get a chance to read 1 Peter? And something just stood out to you that you want to share this quickly before we begin. Anybody? It's a great observation at the heart. Suffering is all through it, and it brings honor to God. Amen. And that's the first. Peter has a lot to say about focusing on God first and others second. That's the heart of the book. Suffering brings honor to God. Good. Okay, good. It does. In 4.1, it talks about arming yourself. You almost have this kind of military metaphor to suffer like uh, Christ did. Good. Again, all throughout the book. Excellent. Please. Uh oh. I'll repeat it for you if you can't hear. Uniquely experienced, didn't he? Amen. Could you all hear that by any chance? No? So let me do my best to repeat the key points. And this is really important connection. You said one of the first things in Peter's life is he didn't want Jesus to suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? And then the second time, what happens? In, uh, he denies Jesus three times because he didn't want to suffer like Jesus did. And yet he writes this book about suffering. So maybe God took his greatest failure and redeemed it to be at the heart of his message. And the one piece I would add, I know you know, is when Jesus restores him three times on the shore, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then what does he tell Peter? He said, he said feed my sheep. And then he says, you will die. You'll be taken where you do not want to go. And you will be clothed by another. 
And the author of John says this is an indication to how he was going to die. That is such a good insight from his life and what he resisted to the heart of his message about suffering. Excellent point. Thank you. Did I see one more hand? And then we'll go. With this the intentionality throughout the book, you know, to prepare your mind, to fervently love, you know. Good. It's that he's constantly being encouraged to go to the intentional and go on. Good. It is. It's a very action-focused book pretty early on, isn't it? In our love, in our action, in our thinking, in our words. Uh, it's a great observation. He's, you get the feeling he's got a little bit of this general inside of him that's like, go. Doesn't give us too much details like Paul does, just gives us bottom line, and then let's go attack. You kind of see that in, in Peter a little bit. Excellent, excellent observations. Okay, so remember, for some of you who just got here uh, tonight, or even those of you who've been here Every time, summing up and remembering the context is vital. So Paul's writing this to Christians, probably in the 60s, who are suffering in Asia Minor. And he's encouraging them to be holy and live good, quiet lives. And what's the main reason why they should be holy? Because God is holy. God's character is the prime motivation for how we should live. Then he quickly gives a second one, which is what? Because of God's judgment. We see God's just judgment. Rulers don't judge justly, whether that's human institutions, whether that's husbands, whether that's masters. They're not, but God judges justly. So we should have good conduct. Also, what else? Another reason why is it produces genuine faith within us. And then, Lord willing, that our character, when we suffer, will be a light to the world to draw them to the kingdom. And then Paul just walk, I'm sorry, Peter walks through the different kinds of authority that we should follow. And then we jump into this book and uh, he starts giving us even some more specifics. So we're in chapter four and we're gonna work through this a little bit, see what progress we can make. And then at the end, remind me if I happen to forget what my Bible study suggestion shall be. Here we go, chapter four. Since, therefore, by the way, why do we stop? What does this tell us? It's, it's therefore, and he says, since, so this is kind of like, here's a conclusion. Because of what we read before, since, therefore, here's what follows, okay? So hopefully you're seeing over and over again how context requires passage before and passages after. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, can you see right from the beginning, what is this book ultimately about? It's really about shifting our thinking, isn't it? It's people who are suffering. He says Christ suffered, and we're going to shift our thinking from temporal things to eternal things, from things that can be defiled to things that are undefiled, things that are perishable to things that are imperishable. Peter's repeating that he wants us to shift our thinking, and if we shift our thinking, everything else will fall in line and we'll be able to suffer well. So he has repeated this over and over again. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin. Now let's stop, let's talk about this for a second. Because on its surface, what does it sound like Peter saying? If you suffer, you're no longer sinning. Is that what Peter's saying? Now Peter distinctly said there is somebody who is sinless and who is it? 
earlier he had said in this passage, he is the sinless, you know, God man, so to speak. So he's not saying we are sinless. I think what Peter's doing is making a contrast here. He's saying rather than being controlled by sin in the flesh, what happens? When we suffer and we have a God focus, it shifts us towards what is right rather than being dominated by sin. So seized from sin doesn't mean you cease sinning, period. And especially when we compare this with the rest of the scriptures, like 1 John, John makes it very clear, if you say you have no sin, you are what? You're a liar. Like John's pretty clear, and there's other passages. So if we just had this passage and nothing else, maybe you could draw a doctrine from this. But given the rest of scripture, I think that's a step too far. And the rest of the writings in Peter. So he's making a contrast between suffering, which can be God's will, and suffering well, versus being controlled by sin. Not being fully sinless. He says, so as to live, we're in verse 2, the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, again, you see the contrast that he's doing? He's saying you have a choice for human passions, and we see what that results in. We see the futility that's passed from one generation to the next. He's about to get into these sin vices, or follow God's will and suffer well. Kind of have two paths that you can go down is what Peter is laying out here before us. So he's kind of saying to his audience, you got to choose A or B. You can't ride on the fence. Be hot or be cold. To use a revelation passage, don't be lukewarm. So he's saying turn from this life of sin and this futility and temporality and turn this fashion and follow God and things that are eternal. That's the kind of thinking that we are to arm ourselves with. That's the contrast that Peter's making here. So he's laying out two paths and calling them, obviously, to follow the right path. We'll do a few more verses, then we'll, we'll stop for, for questions. Uh, where do we stop? No longer human passion, but for the will of God. Notice, how many times have we seen that in this book? You could do a whole study on 1 Peter and the will of God, couldn't you? At least three or four times it pops up that God's will is that we suffer well if it is his will that we suffer. He talks about that a lot in this book. Uh, verse 3, uh, human passion but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So what's he contrasting now? Gentiles, non-believers, with those who are the chosen and those who are the elect. And some of the other translations will say things like debauchery, which is public acts of indecency. To be honest right now, if you think of things of clear debauchery, you might think of things like these, uh, my mind just went blank, these story times with a drag queen story hour with kids. Just public acts of debauchery. That's what was going on in the culture at that time. So that's one example he gives. Living with passions, obviously drunkenness, orgies, there's a sense of, sex, a sense of sexuality, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, let me stop right there. You know something's interesting. Does anybody notice how this maybe contrasts with something Peter had said earlier? It seems to almost be saying the opposite. So they do it as right and good contact, conduct, and what happens? Right here, they get what? They get maligned. What did Peter say might happen earlier? Do good contact, what? So, what's that? Okay, now, 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 true. Now, I might not have been clear in the question. Earlier, Paul said, Peter said, live good lives to do what? As examples for people that some might be saved, right? So part of the good conduct was to draw people to the faith. What happens now? They do good conduct, and what do those in society do? They malign them. So is there a contradiction here? Or is it both? It's both. If you live good conduct, which is an act of grace toward bosses who are unkind, governments who are unkind, some might malign you and some might be drawn to faith. It's both. It's not either or. So the hope is that they would come to faith, but the reality is that some, in fact, will malign you. I don't know if you're there Sunday morning or not. I got a chance to teach on Acts 17. And Peter preaches on Mars Hill. And there's three kind of people that respond. There's some who mock him. There's some who actually believe. And then there's some who are interested, who want more information. There's all kinds of responses. And my challenge to the church Sunday morning was, if you actually preach the gospel some people will mock you. Paul was called a fool, he was called a babbler, and he was mocked. And of course, we saw what happened to Jesus. But the key is, I mean, for me on social media, I can't read all the comments, or I think I would have serious mental health issues. <laughs> I can't do it. Like, I try to read some to get a sense of what people are saying and engage a little bit, but if I read all the comments from Christians and non-Christians, it would just, it would be miserable. Like, you can only handle so much. People mock me all the time, like daily. What I ask myself is, am I getting mocked and maligned for the right things? Is it because I have the wrong attitude? Is it because I made a bad argument? Is it because I was a jerk? Or is it because of the offense of the gospel? If it's the offense of the gospel, then I'm in good hands with Paul and with Peter with Jesus. Now, if I get maligned because I'm a jerk, then that's on me. So sometimes we as Christians get maligned and play the martyrs, com you know, complex. And I'm like, you know what? You kind of brought that on yourself. That was not a very Christ-like way to respond. Look, the gospel is offensive enough. Let us not add anything to it by our character or lack thereof. But if you're going to live Christianly, 
it's going to offend people. It's going to offend people. Right now, while I'm preaching, while I'm teaching this, it's in the middle of Pride Month. And it's always interested me how a group of people is so intent upon even using whatever means possible to get all the rest of us to agree with a certain moral position. Why is that the case? And why so offended that we don't, not all, by the way, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but many are offended that we don't get in line with a certain direction the culture is supposedly going. Why is that? I think at the heart of it, this is true for all of us. If we're living in sin and not doing things that are right, and people don't want to get in line with us, how does that make us feel? More guilty, right? More guilty, because we need to feel justified. So part of what Peter's saying is in one sense, you think, you think if somebody's living in good conduct, people would just leave them alone. That's great. They're great neighbors. But all these people engaging in parties and in drunkenness, and what are the other examples he gives right here? He says, sensuality and passions and or orgies. With this, they're surprised when you do not join them in their debauchery and they malign you. Why? Because you refuse to go along with everybody else and deep in their hearts, they know these things are wrong. They know it. And you and I, if we don't live that way, are a reminder of that. One option is to repent, right? One option, which earlier Peter said, I hope people do, is this act of grace will draw them to the Lord. That's one option, and some people repent. The other is to malign because you're offended that people are not going to live the way morally you want them to live. And those are the two options that Peter has laid out. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's a pretty powerful claim, isn't it? Now, Peter's told us a few times that we are going to get judged, hasn't he? Chapter 1, engage in good conduct because God is a father and he's a judge. Now he says, they are also going to get judged. So they malign you, the ultimate judge is going to hold them to account. Um Verse 6, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Again, there's some debate about exactly what this passage means. Some have tried to argue that this passage says, yeah, even people who are dead have the gospel preached to them and they can repent. But let me ask you a question. Does that fit with the theme of 1 Peter? Because if 1 Peter was saying, you can live evil lives and repent in the afterlife, why would there be such an urgency to live well now? <laughs> right? Why would there be such an urgency to live in a certain fashion now if you can repent in the next life? That's why reincarnation is very different living your life than judgment once and facing resurrection. Because so if you don't get it right in this life and reincarnation, how many chances do you have? Probably as many as you need, right? 
There's no sense of urgency unless you're just uncomfortable and want to get on with the show. But in this worldview, what Peter's saying seems to be pretty clear. Get your life right now because judgment is coming. The living and the dead are going to be judged. So this whole urgency in Peter, it doesn't make any sense to me that he thinks there's a chance in the afterlife to just repent. That doesn't fit at all with the rest of the theme of the letter as I see it. Uh, keep going. Any quick questions just on this section? Anything understanding or question you had? We'll, we'll keep going, but if there's something that didn't make sense from this section, we'll just pause for a moment. All right, you had your chance. Verse 7, it says, The end of all things is at hand. And let me just pause for a second. Because it feels like Peter is saying, the end is very near. Right? Like it's coming soon, and yet it's 2,000 years later. So is Peter mistaken about this? I think Peter is thinking in larger redemptive history. Like you think going back to creation, God has a covenant with Adam, right? Adam and Eve. Then you have the time with Noah and he gives a new covenant with Noah afterwards. Then it is the covenant with Abraham. Then of course you have the period of the judges and you have the kings. You have the time of the prophets. And then finally when Jesus comes, we are in what's called the last times. So he says the end of all things is at hand. There is a sense where Jesus could come back any moment and judge. But we are in this final season, this final inning, however long this inning may go. That's how I think Peter is seeing this. So again, we, I said on the first day, the Jews would live in this tension that the day of the Lord could be tomorrow or it could be in 800 years. <laughs> and they lived within that tension and we live in that same tension right now. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. I love this. And this goes back to what your point was. It's like the end is near. And when the end comes, that's when the final judgment is here. So how should we respond? Instead of freaking out, he has a sense of like, okay, calm down. You got this. Be sober-minded and be self-controlled. Now, if you're going to describe Christian, the Christian community... Would you describe us as sober-minded and self-controlled? And we could spend a lot of time on that, but that's a fair question, isn't it? Would most people, if you asked, describe Christians? Would you say, gosh, I, I follow them on social media, and Christians are sober-minded and have self-control? it doesn't strike me that that's one of our defining characteristics as Christians. We get in a frenzy about politics. We get in a frenzy about certain issues up and down. And things were just as crazy during the day of Peter, just in a very different way. He's like self-control, be sober-minded. Now, how can we have self-control and be sober-minded? Because we are not dominated by things that are temporal. We're not dominated by things that can be, that can defile or perish. Over and over again, Peter's calling us to transform our thinking. Sober-minded and self-controlled. What? For the sake of your prayers. 
Again, isn't that interesting? So guys, when are your prayers not going to maybe be listened to? What did it say? If you don't live it, what towards your wives? In a, someone said it, in an understanding fashion towards your wives, God might not hear your prayers. Like that's a big pause. And he says right here, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Isn't that interesting? Look at Peter has a lot to say about God listening to our prayers based on the way we live. There can be other factors, but that's built into this letter. Then in verse 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, what does that remind you of? Above all, love one another. What does that remind you of? The greatest commandment. Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love God and love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? He says the same thing in Galatians. He says the commandment can be summed up in one word, love. Peter says the same thing. It's almost like he's kind of coming to the end of this letter. He goes, above all, what? Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. That is one of my favorite lines in the Bible. This morning I was speaking to Wildwood, and one of the questions they asked me, they said, what was it like having a father who traveled so much and was gone and was just kind of a world changer? And I said, you know, it wasn't always easy. Having, my dad was probably gone 50% of the time. Sometimes I missed him. But this verse came to mind. I said, but you know what? Love covers a multitude of sins. Not that it was sinful to be gone, but I miss him, and I never doubted that my dad loved my mom or that my dad loved us. So when you know that you're loved, what happens? You're far more likely to extend grace to somebody else because there's a love and a care that's there. If you don't love somebody, what happens? Even the smallest thing, what does it do? It bugs you and it ticks you off, and we just interpret it through our sinful flesh. I love this, the pun intended. He's saying, above all love. And what happens when he's talking about unity and conducting ourselves well? If we really love, we're going to be able to put up with a lot of the other sins and failures that we all have. Love covers a multitude of sins. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. So a couple things. We see this in Paul. When Paul, like in 1 Corinthians, we see in Ephesians, we see these spiritual gift lists. We also see in the book of Romans. I think it's in chapter 12. A gift is not from the word spirit. The word for gift comes from the word for grace. Isn't that interesting? That our spiritual gifts are to be used for the church and they're an act of grace towards others. That's an interesting way to think about it, isn't it? It's not a gift for us. It's what? It's a gift for God and for others. It's an act of grace when we use the gifts that God has given us. Now, when he says right here, he says, as each has received a gift. I don't think he's saying each one only has a spiritual, one spiritual gift. Some people make that argument, but 
but I think we all have at least one spiritual gift. He says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, what is he saying? I think he's talking about, in this book, we've, he's been told a lot not to commit slander, right? There's been a few words about how we speak. He's not saying every time they speak, it's this divine prophetic message from God. He's reminding the folks that he's writing to, saying words have power, kind of like in James chapter 3. So when you speak, realize how powerful words are because you can never take them back. I did this TikTok video recently and I said, I was talking about how toothpaste, when you squeeze it, you can never put it back in the tube. And that's true for our words, isn't it? We can experience forgiveness. But if we went around the room, probably all of you could remember words in kindergarten and first grade and elementary school. People spoke to us that hurt. That's how powerful words are. I think that's what Peter's word encouragement is when he compares it to oracles of God. So whoever serves is one who serves by the strength of God that supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does amen tell us? It's not sense. It's not therefore. He's coming to the end of a certain thought. And what is this final thought? What is all of this about? What is submission about? What is loving our neighbors about? What are the words we use about? What is suffering about? That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, which was exactly your point. What is all this letter about? It's about glorifying God. It's not about us. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Why does he say forever and ever? Because these powers around us are what? They're fading like gold. Peter, almost every line is comparing temporal things with the eternal the flesh with being suffering and living for God, defiled with undefiled. So it comes the end, he says, remember, this is about God who's going to reign not only forever, but and forever. Now, there's a little section we're going to jump in here. But uh, as we wrap up, any thoughts from that section or kind of questions? Yes. I, so I have a couple thoughts. I think that strikes me as plausible. Uh, it, it makes sense. I don't know. I would have to think about it if I think the spiritual gifts are intentionally just divided into those two categories. Because I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I, w- I would have to look at that because there's other ways spiritual gifts are, are divided up, obviously. Right. It's, it's one way. Like some would say, like teaching gifts are natural, but then tongues and healing, there's 
supernatural gifts. Like there's other ways to divvy it up. So I would probably have to look at that a little bit more closely. But anybody who has a speaking gift ought to speak in that fashion nonetheless. But I also think my hunch would be that Peter's not just speaking to those with that speaking gift, but to all the ways that we speak amongst one another, that it have that weight and be of the truth of God, not the temporal of this world. So I, I would have to give that some thought before I gave you a definitive answer, but that is a, that's a very thoughtful, interesting, provocative way to take it. I think that's the best answer I can give you. Yeah, thanks for weighing in. I'm glad you thought about this. Any other questions from this section? All right, let's keep going. We'll get through four. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, now what have we noticed a few times in this book? Children, beloved. He says, there's God the Father, but don't miss that word. Peter is speaking kind of as a pastor or a shepherd as a beloved who's caring for them. There's this fatherly role we don't want to miss. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to upon you to test you. And what is profoundly ironic about that is shortly after writing this, Peter experienced a personal fiery trial during the time of Nero. Don't be surprised at this. And I, I, I'm going to have to wonder, how much of this went back through Peter's mind? Was he like dialed in or was he like, man, I wrote that letter. I really believe this. Like he was still human, right? We all had this. I really wonder what was going through Peter's life and his mind. We'll never know. But he says, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, suffering is what? Strange means odd and rare. It's the norm. It's the norm. I did my PhD dissertation on the deaths of the apostles. So one of the things I had to figure out was, was suffering really common in the time that the apostles lived for Christians? So one thing I did is I read the entire New Testament carefully, and I started noticing every time somebody suffered for their faith or was told they would suffer for their faith, it is like a drumbeat through the New Testament. It's everywhere. It's not just the book of First Peter. Hebrews is filled with it. James talks about it. Philippians is about joy and suffering. The Gospels are filled with it. Romans, you see it. I think it was like Second and Third John that maybe you don't, if I remember. It kind of surprised me. And when I read it, I highlighted, I went through, and it was dozens and dozens of passages. Now, why should this not surprise us? Because we follow a crucified Messiah who was predicted in Isaiah 53 that he be the suffering servant. The forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, was beheaded. First chapters of Acts, what do we have? Stephen, the first martyr for his faith. Acts 4 and 5, the apostles are threatened, beaten, thrown in prison. And in Acts 12, we have James, uh, the brother of John, beheaded. Why was I surprised <laughs> that suffering 
is like a drumbeat through the scriptures. Not that you need more to do, but that was a very powerful exercise for me. If you're looking for something to study and think about this summer, just read through the New Testament carefully and mark all the times that it talks about suffering and persecution and look at it as a whole. That's why Peter says, don't look at you as this is strange happening to you. This is the norm and the expectation for those who follow Christ. That's a very different ethic than what we hear, isn't it? I don't know how often that is preached within the church. I think we miss that. In fact, if I'm right, it's almost strange if somebody doesn't suffer. In fact, it's almost worth asking, if you don't suffer in any fashion, are you sharing your faith? Are you stepping out of your comfort zone? Are you actually sacrificing in some fashion to follow the Lord? That's worth asking. Because Peter says, it's, you shouldn't think it's strange if you suffer. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now here's something very important I, didn't, I don't know that I've emphasized yet. It's not that we're supposed to rejoice in the suffering. Why are we supposed to rejoice when suffering comes? Not because the suffering itself, but because we share the suffering that Christ experienced. That's why, because we worship a Savior who experienced suffering. And when we suffer, we have a chance to love our neighbors, show obedience to God, and share in the suffering of Christ. That's why we rejoice, not because of the suffering itself. When Christians miss that theology, they start wanting to bring on suffering. And you have this in the history of the church. And it's like, no, that is a wrong uh, focused way to look at this. You don't go looking for suffering. But if you follow Jesus, it's going to come. And we rejoice when it comes because we have solidarity with our Savior who also suffered. That's a part of the theology people sometimes miss here. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, verse 13, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Again, Peter, I mean, it, once, even though this book is short, you see it's like a drumbeat. He is repeating it over and over and over again. It's better to suffer for doing what is right, but don't suffer for doing what is wrong. And if anyone is a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now we miss, we go, yeah, not be ashamed, but they had an honor-shame culture. In other words, your identity was rooted in your family. And the worst sin you could commit in this culture was to shame your family. As Americans, we're so individualist. Be yourself, be true to yourself, follow your truth. We miss that in many Eastern cultures, especially during this time, it's not about living your truth. It is about your family and it is about your culture. To shame others was the worst. 
So crucifixion was the most shameful thing that could happen to somebody. Put up publicly, stripped naked to be humiliated. Rather than honored, you were shamed. So in that culture, you're worshiping a Messiah who was crucified. That's very easy for that culture to be like, what is the matter with you? That's shameful. And what is Peter saying? He's going, don't be ashamed. In a sense, be proud in a good sense of the Savior that you follow. Don't be ashamed. What does that remind you of when he says, let him not be ashamed? What passage in the New Testament? Romans 1.16, Paul says what? For I am not ashamed. You know, it's really interesting. Some of you know my father. He is one of the most courageous people I've ever known. Debating Marxists. Like just, I mean, some of the stories I could tell you is like a modern day Paul. He was thrown in prison when he was debating Marxists. They set him up to silence him. He would take over Marxist rallies and then lead people to Jesus. He's debated 250 skeptics and Muslims and atheists. I mean, he's just bold. This man, he used to travel them. He said, you know, he goes, I remember when I traveled to your dad. One thing your dad would say is he'd stop and go, hey, John, remember, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then randomly he goes, hey, John, remember, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He said, your dad would repeat that to me. That's what Peter wants us to remember. Because it's easy to start thinking that what we believe is crazy. Because guess what? It kind of is. It kind of is. You actually believe that somebody died and was put in a grave and three days rose from the grave. You actually believe that even though probably none of you in here have seen somebody rise from the dead. You actually believe the Holy Spirit, God himself, is in your body directing you. You actually believe there's a place called heaven. Like, honestly, most of us live our lives. That's why Peter's right in this. We get caught in the temporal, in the present, worried about this moment. That's what happens. So Peter is like, don't be ashamed because people are going to think you're crazy. Now, we don't need to act any more weird and bring it on, which sometimes we do as Christians. But we also can't lose that what we believe is powerful. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Peter says, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, why would judgment begin at the household of God? We've been given the gospel. Good. But because the house of God, how did this book begin? You are the elect. He says you're a royal priesthood. We are God's holy chosen people. And as Paul would say, we are the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. So judgment begins at the household of God. The older I get, I, I, you know, I get concerned about our secular culture. But I get more and more concerned about debauchery and wickedness and disunity within the church itself. We'd spend less time railing against other people who are living morally and look within at our own gossip and our disunity and our own failures and took this to heart 
I think we would be a much better light to the world, which is exactly what Peter wants us to do, doesn't he? That's why he says judgment starts at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That is an example of a rhetorical question. And the answer is what? It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Last passage, and then we'll wrap up. It says, therefore, let those who suffer again, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In a sense, yes, there's chapter five, but you can almost just drop the mic and walk out on that one. That's Peter's point, isn't it? He's saying, trust your souls, yourself to God. He's the judge. He's the creator. Everybody's going to stand before him. Suffer well. That's the book of 1 Peter. Any just questions kind of on a big scale from this that maybe didn't make sense? We'll take maybe one or two, and then I'll tell you why I don't think you should read the Bible in a year. Amen. That lines right in with what Peter's saying. One of his motivations to suffer well is it produces righteousness and character. Amen. That's a great quote. La- last thought about this. Think about this. What's the best way, what's the most powerful way to stop evil? In some ways, we think it's through power, right? But it's not. God's going to come back and judge through his power. But how was evil ultimately stopped? By doing good. And what act of doing good? It was by suffering. It was by sacrifice. Evil was stopped by love and by sacrifice. This whole book is about suffering. Our human instinct is when somebody suffers, what do we want? Power, vengeance, revenge, silence them. That's human nature. Paul's writing to a group of people. They might not have that power with their husbands. They might not have that power with their masters. They might not have that power with their emperor. But what power do they have? They have power to show honor. They have power to love their neighbors. They have their power to live differently as a wholly chosen people in the culture in which they live. And when it's all said and done, they have the greatest power of love. Evil is stopped through sacrifice and through suffering. I hate to bring around to this, but it's true. We see this in movies, don't we? In movies all the time. It's when a character finally just sacrifices and lays down that character's life that ultimately evil 
is triumphed. You see that in Endgame, right? And you've had plenty of time to see it. It's the sacrifice of Iron Man as an act of love that ultimately defeats Thanos. Of course, that's fictional, but we are drawn to that story because we know in the end it wasn't getting more powerful than Thanos. It was actually an act of real love and real sacrifice that saved the universe. Well, that's true in reality, and that's what book is, this book is about. It's about the power of being gentle. It's about the power of being kind. It's about the power of laying down your life. I mean, one of my favorite lines in the Bible is when Pilate says to Jesus, he's like, I have power over you. And Jesus is like, what? You have no power over me. I willingly lay down my life and I will take it up again. This is a book about power, but it's a different kind of power. It's not the power of the world, husbands who dominate their wives, masters who dominate servants, emperors who dominate citizens. It's about the power of sacrifice, of humility, of kindness, of doing good, and ultimately the power of suffering well. That's the kind of Christian power that ultimately turned the world upside down. And I think that's the kind of Christian power that could only ever do it again. Sometimes as Christians, we get caught up in other kinds of power, don't we? Political power. If I get the right candidate in there, and I don't care if that's Democrat or Republican, then we can fix things. And I'm all for Christians weighing into politics. But do we see, in light of reading First Peter, how backwards that is? That's not the kind of power that is going to transform lives. What transforms lives is sacrifice. What transforms lives is love. What transforms lives is gentleness because that's an act of grace towards people because that's the kind of grace that God has for us. Isn't 1 Peter an amazing book? It's amazing when we look at it in that light. I wish we had time to finish chapter 5 but it's just not going to happen. I don't even have a better line to end on than that. So here's my final thoughts. And then I'm actually, we're driving down to Southern California. So normally I just love staying after hanging, but we are driving down. So I'm going to go pretty quickly, which I, I hate to do, but it's the nature of the game. Here's the deal. I tried to read the book for in a year for like years. And sometimes I made more weeks than others. I missed and then I doubled up and I skipped and at the end of the year, I didn't feel like I learned a ton. If you did, keep it up. More power to you. I have a little bit of a different Bible study plan. And I was encouraging you to do it this week. Because I encourage you to take a month and find a book of the Bible, start in the New Testament, five or six chapters. And read the whole book every day for a month. That's 15 minutes. Now, the good part of this is if you miss a day, what happens? You just move on and read it the next day. You don't have to double up. Feel free if you want to. And you're like, I can't just sit down 15 minutes. Everybody can get an app and listen to it 15 minutes. Walking, driving, break, lunch, totally possible. So what I try to do is take a book of the Bible, and I've been studying First Peter for a while. Try to read it every day. It doesn't happen every day, but that's my goal. Probably 
four or five, sometimes six days a week. Seven if I'm really good that week. But I'll be honest, it's usually four or five times. So in a month, you've read it at least 20 to 25 times. And then after I've read it, then I'll typically get a commentary and I'll start working it through because in my mind, I've already made these connections. I have these ideas. I'm thinking about stuff. I kind of want to go to the experts just to see if I missed anything, if there's any heresy that's in there. I just Then it helps me go deeper and make connections I might have missed. And then the next month, I'll move on and read James. You can read that. Not a long book. Read the whole book of Philippians. People didn't have Bibles in their hands when these were written. They were read out loud. You're thinking, what about Romans? Am I going to read 16 chapters? That's a lot. If you can, more power to you. But I would say break it up into five chapters, five chapters, and six. Read Romans 1 through 5 every day for a month. You're going to know Romans well, won't you? You know, Romans 1, they suppress the Creator. Romans 2, God has made himself known in their conscience. Romans 3 is when he talks about everybody is sinful. Like you start to know and own the scriptures. See patterns, see things that are repeated. So I don't remember the title of it. I wrote a blog and I posted it over the past couple years. I just said, don't read the whole Bible in like 2022. Something like that. A little bit provocative, I'll admit. But it's a good title. And I just laid out each month. I mean, you can take it and copy that. You could come up with your own. But it was a simple blog where I laid out month by month. First Corinthians, obviously, a longer book. Break it up into two or three months. Take the Gospel of Mark, two or three months. And imagine what happens over two, three, five years. You know the Scriptures well, don't you? I guarantee in five years you would know the scriptures far better than if you did reading the entire Bible in a year for 10 years. You would. And he says it's true. He says it, that settles it, I believe it. That's my Bible study plan. So... There you go. Amen to that. But there's something, there's something about repetition that's powerful. So I don't get a commentary until the end because I don't want somebody to do the thinking for me. I want to think about it myself. I want to come up with my own ideas. I want to study it. And sometimes I read commentary, I'm like, oh, yeah, totally missed that one. Okay. Other times I'm like, yeah, oh, I think the commentator's wrong, and here's why. And like you interact with it. Other times I'm like, oh, good, I got it right. That's okay. That's a part of the process. It's not that hard. 15 minutes a day is totally doable. A lot of First Peter, here's the last thing, I'll, I'll end with this. I played with Coach, I played for Coach Holmquist at Biola University. He's still there. He's the fifth all-time winningest coach in college basketball on any level of all time. And this year he'll probably move up to number four. Phenomenal coach, even better person. And he would say to me, he goes, so much of like his secret to coaching, it wasn't that deep. He had good players, which helped. But he would just say to us, he'd go, like, it's just knowing the right thing at the right time and being reminded, box out, take good shots, stop penetration. If that's true for basketball. Isn't that true for life? 
A lot of it is just being reminded of what we know. That's why it's important to stay in the Word. So I challenge you for this summer, just think through, maybe start, start right now. Try, take three books. Don't say, I'm going to do this for five years. That's not a good idea. Maybe take two for this summer and say, I'm going to take two books that you've always kind of wanted to know a little better. Maybe like I've wanted to know James a little better. Maybe jump into 2 Peter since we did 1 Peter. Maybe take 2 Peter. Start just reading it each day for a month. And get a commentator, commentator, commentary on 2 Peter and then work it through. And you will know that book in a way that you probably don't know any other New Testament book would be my guess. That's my Bible study plan. Now, the Old Testament is different. Maybe I'll teach on that next year, so you'll have to come back, and we can talk about that. I'm going to sneak out pretty quickly. I hate to do this, but I know you're going to wrap things up. Our, if it's helpful to you, my, my website is seanmcdowell.org, but I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and have a YouTube channel. And I'll do some funny videos. A couple weeks ago, I, I did like my top five NBA prospects from the Bible. I thought it was really fun and cool. Like imagine the screens that Goliath could set <laughs> and the rebounding that Samson could do. I mean, just unbelievable. So I do some fun stuff, but really social media to me is a ministry to equip people. So I just take tough questions and answer them. And YouTube, I go into longer kind of conversations for an hour. So tomorrow I'm interviewing a fellow who makes a really interesting case that they have found the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah. I watched his video today and was like, wow, this is really interesting, including these sulfur balls that match the story that had been found in the Dead Sea and only in the Dead Sea because anywhere else they would have melted and they would have burned up, but in the water they would have stayed. So that's a resource for you if it's helpful. I'll let you wrap up. Unfortunately, we're going to sneak out more quickly than I would like, but thanks for coming out and then let me teach this week. It's been a joy.